Thank you for watching NTD Business coming up. The Supreme Court set to hear two cases about online speech this week. They're about whether social media platforms could be sued for recommending content to users. We look at what's at stake. Meta wants users to pay a monthly fee to get a checkmark. What perks can people get and how would it help with Meta's revenue? President Biden in a surprise visit to Kyiv, he announces a half a million dollars in aid as well as lasting U.S. support for Ukraine. Iran reportedly reaching a new milestone in its nuclear program, but can it make a nuclear weapon now? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us, Don Mike here. Meta wants you to pay to get verified. Meta, of course, is the parent company for Facebook and Instagram. On Sunday, announced that it's testing a subscription service that will allow users to get a checkmark by their names. The service will cost about $12 a month on the web and about $14 on iOS. Signing up comes with perks, including extra protection from impersonation accounts and direct access to customer support. Meta says it's releasing the service in Australia and New Zealand this week. It plans on doing so in more countries soon. Bloomberg reports, according to its analysis, the move could add 2 to $3 billion to Meta's sales every year. Meta joins other platforms like Discord, Reddit, Twitter, and YouTube who have their own subscription-based models. How much should social media companies be protected over user-generated content? And can they be sued for recommending content to their users, even terrorist content? The Supreme Court is set to hear two cases this week. Their outcome could greatly impact free speech as we know it on social media. NTD Shar Marshall has more. Two cases going to the Supreme Court can give social media companies the power to limit free speech as we know it. The cases involve something called Section 230. Section 230 is a liability shield. So what it means effectively is that anything that gets posted on any of these social media companies or even under a news company that has a comment section, they're not liable for. They can't be sued for that. The two cases, Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tamne, are looking at whether tech platforms and social media companies can be sued for recommending content to their users. I asked business law professor Nicholas Creel about past cases going to court over Section 230. If you go back several years, we noticed that Section 230 was so strong of a liability shield that it was protecting the likes of Backpage.com when we knew they were engaging in child sex trafficking. 230 was so strong that it prevented us from stopping them from child sex trafficking. So what did Congress do? It went ahead and carved out an exception. Terrorist recruitment videos screen for that same sort of an exception to be carved out. An American college student, Nohemi Gonzalez, was killed by Islamic State gunmen as she sat with friends in a Paris bistro in 2015. Her mother, Beatrice Gonzalez, is now claiming YouTube's recommendations helped the Islamic State group's recruitment. That case is scheduled for Tuesday. A similar case set for Wednesday involves a terrorist attack at a nightclub in Istanbul, Turkey in 2017. I asked Creel what would happen if the social media companies lost these cases. And so if all of a sudden they can be sued for that kind of material, they're probably gonna wanna pull back pretty heavily on all that sort of things to either make sure they vet every single thing that goes on there, which would be almost so insurmountable that only some of the most high-end users are gonna ever be able to interact with media in any significant way on the internet. Section 230 has given current giants like Facebook and Amazon avenue for expansion. 
and taking that away would limit new companies from the same growth potential. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Rulings in these cases are expected by the end of June. The CEO of ChatGPT creator OpenAI says regulating artificial intelligence will be critical. That's as he warned that technology may not be that far from potentially scary forms of it. In a series of tweets over the weekend, Sam Altman explained that adapting to an AI-integrated world will probably happen quickly. He said those tools will become smarter and even more entertaining. Something he called mostly good. As for related challenges, he explained that society, institutions, and regulation need time to adjust. The comments come after Microsoft's ChatGPT-powered search engine Bing sparked uproar last week. The AI chatbot gave a number of unexpected responses to questions from snide comments to emotional quips. Sixty nations, including the U.S. and China, supporting a call to action. Their message, all countries must use artificial intelligence or AI responsibly in their military development. NTD's Tiffany Meyer brings us this report. The pledge was made during the first international summit on military AI. The Netherlands and South Korea co-hosted the gathering at The Hague. What exactly are its military applications? AI can process vast amounts of data very quickly, making it ideal for assessing threats, analyzing scenarios, and even boosting cybersecurity. It can also aid in training for troops and even help find qualified recruits. All of that while reducing the amount of manpower and time needed to achieve goals. Human rights experts and academics noted the statement isn't legally binding, and critics say it fails to address concerns like AI-guided drones, slaughter bots that could kill with no human intervention, or the risk that an AI could escalate a military conflict. Organizers did not invite Russia following its 2022 invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine chose not to attend. That's as the nation has made use of facial recognition and AI-assisted targeting systems in its fight with Moscow. The U.S. and other powerful countries have been reluctant to agree to any legal limits on using AI. That's for fear that restricting the technology could put them at a disadvantage to rivals. And President Biden today made a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital. The trip marks a show of solidarity with the war-torn country, just days ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Take a look. President Joe Biden made an unannounced visit to Kyiv, his first to the war zone since taking office. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky received his guest outside the Marinsky Palace. He said the visit was an extremely important sign of support for all Ukrainians. Thank you very much for coming, Mr. President. That is a huge moment of supporting for the Ukraine. And uh, what can I say? I really appreciate that President Biden, American society, being from the very beginning of this tragedy, from the very beginning of this full-scale war, from the first days being together with us, first phone call of support was from White House to Ukraine. The two leaders visited St. Michael's Golden Domed Monastery in Kyiv. As an air raid siren sounded, the two paid tribute to fallen Ukrainian soldiers memorialized on one of the cathedral's walls. At a joint press conference, Biden recalled the fears one year ago that Russian forces might take over the Ukrainian capital. That dark night, one year ago, 
The world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev. Seems like a lot longer ago than a year, but think back to that year. Perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kiev stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. The Americans stand with you and the world stands with you. Zelensky said their talks brought the two countries closer to a joint victory. Biden's visit came ahead of a scheduled visit to Warsaw, Poland. He pledged another $500 million in military aid for Kyiv. The assistance will include howitzer shells, anti-tank missiles and air surveillance radar, but not the new advanced weaponry that Kyiv has been seeking. Zelensky has pressed Western powers to provide fighter jets, but the Allies are reluctant to do so. That's out of fear of escalating the war, which then might cross over the border into NATO-allied countries. Zelensky said he spoke with Biden about possible long-range weapons supplies to Ukraine, but didn't offer details. Biden also said he would announce further sanctions against Russia later in the week. Now, besides the $500 million in military aid for Kyiv, Biden announced today, last year, Washington approved $113 billion for Ukraine. This is as the U.S. faces a possible default on its record high national debt. This is also during a period of high inflation. So today we talked to an economist about some of the impacts of too much government spending. Joining me is Brian Dimitrovic, economics historian and scholar at the Laffer Center. So Brian, with Biden's visit to Ukraine, $500 million spent on aid towards the country. Let me ask you about government spending in general. Does too much spending have an upward pressure on inflation? Yeah, government spending is, is just generally a problem. Of course, national defense is in the portfolio of uh, the country constitutionally. Um, you can quibble about whether or not spending one-eighth of the early defense budget on Ukraine makes sense. Uh, but there's no question that government spending is a drag on the economy. The problem with government spending is simply that it removes active resources from the economy and makes them inert. So if somebody's out there you know, active in the economy, making things or buying things uh, in private exchange, uh, those people are removed from that exchange and government spending takes over. So when the government makes a transfer payment, they create an incentive for people not to work. When government creates a contract or a subsidy, it takes a business that otherwise would, would try to make it in the private sector and says, we're gonna give you kind of a free ride in making it. And so you just diminish natural production. You diminish the natural rate of economic growth that would have. So I, I think the most important harm uh, that government spending accrues to the economy is that it simply decreases real economic activity. And less production, of course, means that the production that is there is scarce, and scarcity leads to higher prices and inflation. Now, reducing government spending, if you think about Social Security, if you think about unemployment benefits, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, there's obviously a pro, but what are the cons? Do the pros outweigh the cons? When the United States grows at its normal rate of growth, I mean, which for years was comfortably over 3%. Since 2000, we've only grown at maybe 2%, actually under. So historically, we've grown at about double that rate of growth. Well, if you double the rate of economic growth right now, for Pete's sake, I mean, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid will stop to become pro stop being problems because people will be able to save for their retirements. They'll be able to have money for their medical care in a much, to a much greater extent than under sub 2% growth. 
So if you have real economic growth, like we've always had in this country before the 21st century, all these problems kind of vanish in the context of a general prosperity and abundance. Sure, but it takes time, right? And the immediate effects will be felt before we get to that uh, prosperity. Yeah, I, I don't know how much time it takes. So, for example, in a kind of a classical example, Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981 and scheduled a tax rate cut basically to be fully effective on January 1st, 1983, so 18 months later. And the very moment that tax cut became effective on January 1st, 1983, the United States had two straight years of over 6% economic growth. So 1984, 1980, 1983, 1984 calendar years, economic growth was 14%, 13%. So I mean, the problem was just kind of wiped out immediately. I mean, everyone was, was if you had Shanghai levels of growth of the 1990s in the United States in the mid 1980s, the stock market went up like by 50%. And so the wealth effect and the entrepreneurial effect of these kind of tax and, and, and spending reductions were simply phenomenal within a very short window of time. And then in the long run, say by through the 1990s, you saw all the problems vanishing. I mean, there was barely even a government debt left by, by 2001. All right. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for joining us today. Sure, Don. Nice. Thank you for having me. In today's special report, we look at Iran's nuclear ambitions. The country may be getting closer to obtaining a nuclear weapon. UN inspectors have reportedly discovered that Iran has enriched uranium to 84% purity. Now, 90% is the level needed for a weapon. This is the highest level ever detected in Iran. Some context. Iran has a strained relationship with Western countries, especially the United States. Iranian officials have even threatened to attack the United States and its allies. So the Western world has been heavily focused on Iran's nuclear capabilities. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, says around 55 pounds of 90% enriched uranium would be necessary for a nuclear weapon. It says it's aware of the reports that Iran has 84% enriched uranium, but it neither confirms nor denies the reports. Iran, on the other hand, denies them and accuses Western media of smearing and warping facts. For expert insight on the situation, we talked to nuclear chemist Thomas Shinzart. He noticed that the reports don't necessarily tell us if Iran has enough materials necessary for a functioning nuclear weapon. And you can definitely uh, get what we call hot particles, where you have an individual particle that has very high enrichment or if you're if you're not talking about uranium, just has very high radioactivity levels that is not representative of the bulk of the material. We also spoke with Kay Campbell, a former U.S. military intelligence officer with five years of Iran experience. You actually need a weapon, right? You actually need to be able to, um, for a uranium weapon, is usually an implosion type device. So um, there's a lot of information out there on you know, how to design nuclear weapons. And so you have to be able to design nuclear weapon, weapon, make it small enough to put on top of a missile or some other delivery device, right? Or a, you know, air to ground bomb, for example. To prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, Western countries in the past made a deal with it, commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. Part of the deal, Western countries would lift sanctions if Iran hampered its nuclear program. Donald Trump threw away that deal because he said it actually benefited Iran. 
We spoke with Middle East expert Fasil Saheed Almodar to get his take. The nuclear deal, in my opinion, was a disaster. Um, Iran had the upper hand in that deal, and, and the thing is that they were able to do most of what they wanted um, with the deal. Sanctions are a very complicated subject, um, and, and, and the idea is that some, some theorists believe they work and some don't. I'm actually somewhere in the middle. I think that uh, the fact that we are seeing now with a lot of the protests and, and the harm of the Iranian, the sanctions did a lot of harm to the Iranian economy. It's waking a lot of people up inside Iran about the threats of, of their own regime to the entire world and, and, and the neighboring countries. Arya Lightstone, a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, says the sanctions currently in place are half measures. He says these half measures do not work and we need something stronger. Either you want to crush this regime or you don't want to crush the regime. If you want to crush the regime, then you have to go full force completely and totally. So I'm not advocating a military intervention at this point in time. I'm advocating that the Western world comes up with sanctions that cannot be evaded. And those sanctions, be it evaded through China, which is happening in real time, or Russia, which is also happening in real time, we have the ability to have a united front against Iran. The IAEA's Board of Governors is meeting on March 6th. It's very likely they'll give us an update on the situation at that time. We'll keep you updated. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, the IRS saying some taxpayers in four states may have to report special stimulus payments this year. And used car prices set to rise again after record levels last year. That and more coming up on NTD Business. And welcome back. We have an update on whether last year's stimulus payments are taxable or not. The IRS says most taxpayers in states that gave stimulus last year will not have to report it. However, some residents in four states will have to. Those states are Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, and Massachusetts. Bloomberg reports if you live in those states and you itemized deductions but did not reach a $10,000 cap on deductions, you might have to report the payments. If you live in those four states, you can check with your tax professional to find out if you're affected. And you might soon be paying more money for a used car. Wholesale prices for used cars being sold at auction have risen sharply in the last few weeks. According to Mannheim, prices jumped 4% in just the last two weeks. That's an unusually large increase in such a short time period. And the jump also caught industry insiders by surprise. A shortage of new car inventory helped drive both new and used car prices to record levels earlier last year. Now, with the busy selling season for used cars only months away, dealers are scrambling to rebuild inventories, which is resulting in higher prices for used cars. Home prices are still going up in most parts of the country, but there are some areas that are seeing price drops. The National Association of Realtors reports median prices for single-family homes increased 4% in the last quarter from a year ago to more than $378,000. But researchers found that a few markets saw big drops. 
For example, San Francisco had the biggest price drop in the country. Median home price there is down 6.1% from a year ago. In San Jose, California, price is down nearly 6% from a year ago. Other areas seeing a drop in home prices include Los Angeles, Anaheim, California, and Boulder, Colorado. For the 31st straight time, our Marvel Cinematic Universe movie has debuted number one at the box office. Here are the early estimates for the top five films in theaters from Friday through Sunday. I don't know what's going on here. Knock at the Cabin stayed in fifth place, scaring up $3.9 million. Puss in Boots' The Last Wish is at $168 million domestic after a fourth place weekend worth $5.3 million. Magic Mike's Last Dance fell from first to third on ticket sales of $5.5 million. Avatar The Way of Water made $6.1 million for second place and a domestic total of $658 million, passing Jurassic World for ninth place on the all-time list. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania opened big, $104 million, the best Ant-Man launch ever and the first $100 million debut this year. The British Academy Film Awards ceremony was held yesterday. The Banshees of Inni Sheeran won four awards, including Best British Film. But if Irish tourism officials have their way, the countryside portrayed in the film may end up being the big winner. Let's take a look. Just tell me what I've done to you. When you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You liked me yesterday. The film, The Banshees of Inner Sharon, is getting high honors at award shows, winning three Golden Globes and nominated for nine Oscars. But it's the film's location, featuring island sea-sprayed Atlantic coast, that's stealing scenes. Inner Sharon is a fictional place, but the places where the movie was filmed, mainly Ackle Island in Western Ireland and Innes Moor, part of the Aran Islands, are ready for visitors. Tourism Island has launched a marketing campaign and tourism video to capitalise on the film's popularity. And while the Banshees of Irish folklore are omens of death, the Banshees of Inner Sharon is pretty good business. Filming has brought in nearly $2 million worth of revenue to the area. There's now a tour of the movie's shooting locations and some of the shops have started selling souvenirs. There's a lot of people that with, with gift shops already and they're in the process of doing gifts with Banshees stuff on it. So, yeah, yeah, we're getting there. It's given us time. Our tourist season really starts from Easter time on. Starting from now. But shush like party. You know, shush like. Like the characters in the film, having a drink at the pub is likely something many visitors will want to do, although the pub in the movie was just a set. But a local bar says it did manage to save a few memorable props. As it turns out, these are the infamous shears. Uh, that's, uh, I don't want to ruin the film for anyone, but trust me. This woman was one of 120 extras in the movie. The donkeys are her own. No, Jenny! Out! No relation to the famous Jenny the donkey, who also starred in the movie. But she says the island is planning parties for Oscar night to root on the hometown hit. We almost feel like we deserve an Oscar as well because, you know, the the beauty of the area and you know it's such a, a lovely place to visit and anyone that ever does visit 
always um, falls in love with the place. The dark comedy centres on the loss of a friendship, played out in thatch-roofed cottages, windswept beaches and vast panoramas of the Irish countryside. So far, that's a winning combination on screen and off. And if that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Don Mike, you can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. See you tomorrow.